Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tune into Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey, you're listening to Pineapple Radio on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Atara. And I'm your other host, Ariel. And we're behind Pineapple Collaborative, a community for women who love food. And we do lots of things in the big wide world of women in food. Uh, we have our in-person events in DC, San Francisco, and New York. Uh, we've got uh, radio, which you're listening to today. We have our digital content, like a weekly newsletter and um, a fun editorial series called Pine Four Pantry, uh, where we peek into the kitchens of women we admire. And last but not least, we're social on Instagram, which is obviously important. And uh, you can find us at Pineapple Collaborative. Um, Today, we are exploring a really exciting topic on radio, all about culinary appropriation versus appreciation. And this is a big, juicy topic, and there's so much that we um, are going to cover with our awesome guests, uh, Crystal Mack and Sunyata Aman, here in the uh, full-service radio studio in D.C. Um, But before we get into that, we're going to tell you a little bit more um, about uh, Pine Four and a fun pick that we have to share with you. Yeah, so Arielle, what is Pine Four? So Pine Four is our guiding philosophy here at Pineapple, uh, which is the idea that admiring other women, women-made products, women-powered companies creates community. And specifically celebrating women is super important because for so long, women in many industries, and specifically the food industry, have been underrepresented in all kinds of ways. Um, And secondly, we're all about collaboration over competition. Hence our name, Pineapple Collaborative. So we really want to create a space digitally and you know, in real life where women can collaborate rather than compete. So that's yeah. Pine Four. Super core to who we are and everything that we do. Uh, one of the ways that we encourage people to celebrate women and for us to share that is to use our hashtag Pine Four on Instagram or just using it in real life with your friends. We use it all the time. And one ways that one of the ways that we express that too is uh, through our newsletter, and we send it out every single week. It's a reflection of a woman's values, identity, and style. Each week we have um, our pineapple picks, which is basically a collection of all of the things we're super excited about in the great big world of women and food. It's really easy to sign up. We hope that you do. Just head to pineapplecollaborative.com/join. Cool. Um, so, Atara, we I want to get into our favorite picks of the week. Um, you know, specifically our favorite kitchen products made by women we admire. So, Atara, what's yours? I've been loving uh, the achar, which is um, a Indian pickle uh, by Brooklyn Deli. So, it's made by a woman named Chitra Agrawal. She is really inspiring. Like totally brilliant entrepreneur and I heard her speak at Cherry Bomb Jubilee and one of our guests Crystal is there with me Um, and I really loved her take on her definition of American food and how to her this this Indian pickle is a reflection of her American food Uh, it's you know influenced by her heritage in India by her growing up in Wisconsin um, she's she's really awesome and we'll, we'll talk more about the complexity behind that too but her condiments from Brooklyn Deli specifically her tomato achar is so delicious yum yeah <laughs> it's lunchtime now and I'm always getting so hungry on pineapple radio uh, <laughs> for m- more than one reason but anyway my my favorite uh pick of the week is actually Helen Levy Ceramics. Um, we gave them a shout on Instagram. Uh, they're in our newsletter this week, but she makes the most beautiful um, handmade clay 
uh, mugs and tumblers and pitchers, anything that you could possibly want made of clay in your house. She makes and it's beautiful. Um, I'm on I'm on a tea kick, and uh, you know we were talking about that earlier today with one of our guests, Sunyata, and. Uh, there, you know, you just want to drink from your Helen Levy mug all the time. So that's my pick. Yeah, I love those too. They are super beautiful. It's really like earthy. You know, she calls things like ocean or meadow, you know, based on the color palette. Yeah, I can get into that. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So we're going to talk a little bit about our topic today. Ariel kind of hinted to this earlier, but topic is really juicy. It's super important. Today, we're going to be talking about culinary appropriation. It's complex, it's charged, but it's a very, very crucial topic. So two weeks ago, we hosted an an event in New York on this very topic with Kim Chow from Food Book Fair, Jess Kapadia, a writer at the Food Republic, Fanny Gerson of La New Yorkina, Priya Krishna, who's a really fantastic food writer, and the one and only Dr. Jessica B. Harris, who is a venerable and prolific food writer uh, and historian. It was a super enlightening conversation and event, and we thought that the convo that we had there was so crucial that we wanted to bring it to a wider audience on the radio. And here's where we're at with this topic. When we think about food, it's really easy to fall back on nostalgia, on family, on comfort. Um, But what happens when your traditions are taken by others who profit by them? We're in a moment now in our food world when kimchi is referred to as trendy, a best barbecue roundup doesn't include any black people, and a chopped cheese, which many, many of you may know is like a chopped hamburger sandwich at New York bodegas. They're sold for around $3. They are also sold at an upscale supermarket for 10. So on the other hand, food can also build bridges. And we know that by learning about the cuisines of others, we can see through the lens of a culture we've never looked through before. Yet if we exploit the food and those who create it for our own gain, we decidedly burn those bridges. So where do we draw the line? Should there even be a line? Let's talk about it today. We're talking all things culinary appropriation, sovereignty, pride, and power with two guests that we pine for, Crystal Mack and Sunyata Amen. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hi. Hi. Huge welcome. And uh, I'm going to briefly introduce our two guests um, so that all of you listeners have more context on who's joining us today. Um, so Dr. Sunyata Amen, am I saying that right? Yes. Okay, beautiful. I think I mispronounced it earlier. Sorry about that. That's a lot of vowels. There's a lot going on in there. It's okay. We'll get it. I, I feel it's you. A beautiful my name. name is my name's a mouthful too. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, Sunyata is a fifth generation herbalist and naturopathic physician hailing from a Jamaican Cuban family of healers. She's been on a lifelong mission to take healthy living out of Birkenstocks and slip into stilettos. She is the child of Black Panthers who founded Black Pyramid and Tree of Life health food businesses in New York City. Sunyata is the owner and TEO of the award-winning Calabash Tea and Tonic in the Shaw neighborhood of Washington, D.C., with a soon-to-open second location in the Brooklyn neighborhood. She's also spoken widely about gentrification and racial divides in D.C. and is truly all that we pine for. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here, Sunyata. It's my absolute pleasure. And uh, we also have Crystal Mack in the studio who joined us from Baltimore, Maryland uh, this morning. Thank you for making the drive down. Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's not easy, especially with the rainy weather. Um, So we're super grateful you made the trip. And uh, Crystal has um, been such an awesome supporter of Pineapple um, since, since almost we began. And, uh, you know, beyond that, her credentials. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, she is a dessert whiz, uh, small business owner, activist, and, and so much more. Um, you may know her as the owner of uh, Black Sugar Bakery, and, uh, which is a food and lifestyle concept uh, from a black feminine perspective. Um, You may also know her um, from her work at Little Pearl in D.C., uh, which is a brand new bakery, restaurant, cafe um, in uh, the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Would love to hear more about what you do there later. Um, And, you know, her strong sense of identity, purpose and justice around food is so palpable and shows us the power of using food as a platform for change. 
whether she's talking representation, labor issues, or access to good food. She's also the epitome of everything we pine for. And, you know, you may have seen her featured a few times in the pineapple world uh, at our Cherry Bomb panel last October and in our Pine For Pantry series earlier this year. Uh, check it out if you haven't already. And uh, we just can't get enough of all that you have to share. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Huge welcome to both of you. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so we're going to dive right into the conversation, Let's if that is cool. So what we'd like for y'all to do first is to please introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your food journey and what led you here. Start with Sunyata. Oh, thanks. Um, well, I'm an herbalist first and then a human being probably second or third. I don't know. But <laughs> my relationship with plants is a lifelong uh, journey and understanding. I grew up between two islands between Manhattan and Jamaica and my experiences in both of those places definitely color the way that I see uh, plants, food, the lack of food, food deserts, um, the the push of uh, synthetic food and foodstuffs, cheese foods, foods, you know, <laughs> onto people. Um, but in addition, uh, the time that I spent growing up in my parents' businesses in New York City, my dad's also an ethnobotanist. Um, and their locations in New York really educated me, uh, albeit reluctantly as a child. You know, other kids are doing other things, and I'm the girl bagging the golden seal in my parents' shop. Wow. <clears throat> and so, uh, but that I never got sick, I will say that. I, I've never spent a day in the hospital, never got sick, and mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with all the stuff I was breathing in, probably <laughs> working in there. But it, it taught me a lot about... Um, our relationships with food, the consciousness with which we pick the things that we eat and drink daily, and influenced my uh, trajectory, which was really initially a trajectory on the path of um, standard physician, standard issue physician, probably emergency room, because I'm good at putting out fires. But uh, I saw that the real emergency was a long-standing and a, and a spanning emergency within the disconnection between real food, um, nutrition, and, and what we were starting to call food. So that's kind of the direction that I went in. Cool. And what are you doing now? Besides hanging out with you guys, yeah. I, um, <laughs> I am the owner of Calabash Tea and Tonic, and we sell to maybe like 50 or 60 wholesale accounts. Uh, So we're in a lot of cafes and restaurants, but then we also provide our own experience within our our context, um, which is great, which is is, uh, about creating community, and that's really what we're we're for. That's what we pine for. Yeah, (laughs) it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Their teas are amazing. If you're in D.C., definitely check them out and check them out online too. Uh, But -hmm. it's fascinating hearing about your upbringing and how that influenced where you are today the child labor of it all (laughs) yeah definitely did yeah uh you know my my grandmother used to say to me you know when I was doing these things like you know learning how to season food or learning how what herbs went on what and why that was significant to health and I just had this like incredibly sour look on my face as a teenager and I just I didn't want to be in the kitchen I was like eh and she said to me one day you know the people who control the food control the people in the house Mm. and I was like bing 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 you have my attention hello we have a winner and that extends to uh, our ability as adults to um, influence culture and influence people with offering um, things that we may have grown up with things Mm -hmm. that may be traditional to us and it goes into that the conversation of appropriation versus appreciation as well Definitely. And we talk about that a lot when we produce our Pine Four Pantry series, which is all about a woman in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. People are like, wait, are we setting ourselves back by celebrating this? And we always talk about how it's actually a place of power and not oppression and that we have so much influence right. over our households that way. Right. When she put it to me that way, I, she had my full attention. Yeah. And I went in hard and l- tried to learn every single thing she could teach me about how to create food um, and how to make things that were... Uh, botanically significant, so medicinal mm-hmm. in nature, but taste amazing. And so you've, you've got the medicine in the food. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. All right, Crystal, 
on to you. Tell us a little bit about your food journey and what led you here. Uh, well, my food journey began somewhat in 2013. Uh, at that time, I was actually in a completely different industry. I was in the spa world. <laughs> I was an esthetician at Red Door Spa, and I'd been there for about five years and was feeling a little stunted, had applied uh, for a position in New York, actually got recommended to apply, went up, um, got the job, but then was told that I couldn't get a relocation stipend, so it was kind of feeling like I was underinvested in as an employee. Mm -hmm. I spent so much time and energy um, helping other people relax, other people heal, and I just wasn't getting that back. Um, so then I started to explore all of the the career dreams of my childhood. <laughs> Still working at the spa, but I started thinking to myself, what were the things that, you know, I, I come from a home of two educators where everybody had a master's at least, and um, it was kind of like you go to school, you go to college, and I was like the black sheep because I dropped out of college. Um, and uh, I always wanted to kind of do more creative things, but growing up in Baltimore, it was definitely a city of like you work uh, for the city or you work, uh, get a good hospital job or you get, become an accountant or something like that. You know, does it have good benefits is the question <laughs> that, your, that your parents always ask. Uh, so, you know, that, that was kind of my main motivation of um, looking for a career, finalizing a career when I was younger. Uh, but when I had that point in my mid-20s of, okay, I think I need to reassess, um, that's when I decided to get back into cooking. I'd always loved cooking. I always cooked and baked after school. I would sneak behind my parents' back and do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, started exploring that more. And um, that also in getting more involved with my community. So um, every concept that I've ever created, uh, like Karma Pop, that was my very first concept. Um, it was a farm-to-stick ice pop business that was Kickstarter-backed, and um, with that, that was more of an exploration of um, community art and also uh, what would it look like to only use mid-Atlantic produce. Um, so everything that was in season in the Baltimore area and also only working with urban farms or minority-owned farms uh, when possible, um, that was the focus of Karma Pop. And so it if you look at it in a very single-minded way, it could seem like that would be very restricting, but in fact, it actually created a lot of opportunity for me to tap into my environment. Um, I started working at a local urban farm, real food farm in Baltimore, uh, and from that, I uh, really started to build more ties in the food and farming community. I got to see the process of, you know, seed to table and just how that works, not only as a consumer, but also as a business owner and a maker. Um, so that was my very first concept that I did. Um, and with me, I like to think of them all as art projects. Um, I know like when you think of food in school, it's like culinary arts, the culinary arts, but we don't necessarily think of it that way anymore. Um, it definitely is more of a product, but I think we should always try to go back to looking at the art aspect of things. So every, um, every concept that I've ever created has always come from the like what if, like an art and praxis kind of thing of... Um, you know, what if or what would it look like if? So for me, the Karma Pop uh, concept was what would it look like if I supported uh, urban farms and minority-owned farms and focus on mid-Atlantic seasonality. Um, then with Black Sugar, uh, I was opening a space in a food hall um, in a historically uh, lower-income white neighborhood in Baltimore that um, if any of you have ever seen Hairspray, <laughs> uh, that, that neighborhood is, <laughs> it's a great movie. Uh, that neighborhood is south of that neighborhood. Uh, that's Remington, that, that's right? Yeah, it's Remington. So uh, Hairspray takes place in like Hamden. Right. Remington is south of that. Um, and in this food hall, it's called Our House, um, I was the only true woman owner and the only black woman owner um, and the only owner of my age set of like, 30s um and uh it was very hard <laughs> it was very hard um I definitely did not you know I, I came into it with like uh rose-colored glasses thinking that you know we're all here to create a space in the community um you know and it really it really opened my eyes to a lot of the injustices that um you can actually be a part of if you don't really 
wake up and pay attention to how you are being used. Um, and even in my, um, my creation of Black Sugar, since it was a very white food space, um, they wanted everyone to kind of come up with a new concept. And they didn't want you to have what you were doing before. It was like bringing something new and fresh to the table. And since it was a very white food space, I was thinking to myself, um, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to just be my, my most true original self. I'm going to be very unapologetic about it. I wasn't coming at it in a sense of like, I'm going to be a black woman in food. Um, but the more I leaned into who I am, you know, the more that was very apparent that I am a black woman in food. Um, and the more uh, pushback I got on things, um, little things here and there, like, you know, supporting, um, supporting Muslim people in our community when the Muslim ban happened or, you know, having posters of like gay pride and like supporting. And, um, and you got you got like emails or oh, yeah, emails from uh, the developers saying, you know, it's kind of creating a little bit of. Uh, hostility amongst the people in the community they're not really feeling supported when it was actually wow. the opposite people in the community were coming up saying thank you for this um, but it was not necessarily in line with what they had curated for their space mm-hmm. um, so uh, with that which made me learn a lot I almost see that whole time as a performance piece um, I decided to kind of focus more on myself and exploring, exploring um, what it's like to be a part of the, a part of gentrification, I guess I should say. Um, I've, I live in Baltimore. Baltimore is changing. It's been changing since the uprising and the murder of Freddie Gray. Um, and I kind of wanted to go back to a place where I could kind of see the, not the end result, but in a sense, the end result, which is why I'm here in D.C. <laughs> uh, I'm working in Southeast at Little Pearl. And um, like I said before, with every concept that I've had, I've always worked another job that was directly connected to that. Mm. Um, Right now I'm at Little Pearl. Little Pearl is in Southeast. It's in Capitol Hill. Um, Southeast, from my understanding and research, (laughs) used to be a very black part of D.C. D.C. used to be Chocolate City. It's not that much, very much anymore. (laughs) Cappuccino City. (laughs) Cappuccino, Latte City. Latte City. Yeah. I mean, even in my recent experience of going to Sonar, I haven't been to Sonar in five years. I used to go to Sonar maybe once a month. Uh, the Sonar in Baltimore? Sonar in DC. Oh, not Sonar, excuse me. Uh, 930 Club. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Very Baltimore. Uh, sonar. <laughs> I miss sorry, that Sonar place. Is uh, <laughs> But when I used to go, you know, I used to go to DC all the time to go to shows at 930 Club. And, you know, I would go maybe once a month, every month. That was like my weekend escape. And I hadn't been in four years because, you know, business ownership takes up your time and your money. (laughs) So I actually had time and money to go to a show. And I went and there was a landmark theater next to 930 Club. And then there was also a mezcal bar. And then there was also a ramen ramen spot. And then there was also a burger window. And then there was also these high rise apartments. And I was like, four years time. There's going to be a whole foods there too. in I think a month or two or something. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, and I, it just made me like be like, wow, there's, you can't escape it. <laughs> you just can't get away from it. And it's happening right now in Baltimore. Um, so I guess I'm trying to see what I'm doing now is talking to my friends who grew up in Southeast, who live in Southeast now. Um, that exploration of um, how can I how can I be sure that my people are included in this conversation of gentrification? How can I be sure that um, black people or people of color um, in situations where gentrification is happening um, are not being used as tools. Like, I was briefly used as a tool, and I did not realize until, like, midway through, which is why I left our house. Um, and three, um, the bigger conversation of race, class, um, and how that is actually being used as a uh, cover for bigger things happening. I feel like there are a lot of black people like perfect example in Harlem who profit from gentrification but it's because you are black it's not seen as like oh it's like it's okay it's not okay you're still displacing me I've lived here my whole life and you know you're coming in and souping up and buying a house because it's way cheaper um anyway sorry we're gonna talk about cultural appropriation no that's that's (laughs) but it's still tied to that because it's a conversation about power exactly and who is benefiting and how are we are not being inclusive to people who have been here and are just kind of sitting on the sidelines because they don't fit the look of curation that you want for your new space. Right. This isn't an art space. It's my home, you know. 
So, um, well, let's jump in. No, thank, thank you. <laughs> that is sorry. That is a very powerful overview. And before I ask the question, the first question about culinary appropriation, Sunyata, I feel like you were maybe trying to comment on something. Do you have something to say about? about no, this I agree as well? completely. I I understand those perspectives. I have uh, owned several places in D.C. that uh, business establishments that are in what would be considered gentrified or gentrifying neighborhoods. And um, it's a slippery slope. It's tough. I mean, I I grew up in Tribeca in New York. I don't know if you know that neighborhood, but, um, you know, I was one of those loft kids. You know, I grew up in a a huge loft in Tribeca and, uh, you know, with artist kind of parents. And um, right now, you know, those apartments are probably three and four million dollars, the same, you know, ones that we grew up in. I, I think it's always that slippery slope because, hey, I mean... I grew up in a, in a neighborhood. I've owned things here. I like Thai food. So, yes. you know, like I, I don't think there should be that things shouldn't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about inclusivity right. as we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I like ramen. Hey. I like, you know, I mean, I just all my <laughs> exactly. life. I grew up next door to Chinatown. I, I you know, the, these are the experiences that we have. And, and that ties into the conversation about the difference when it comes to um, those experiences in the neighborhood, one of the first harbingers of the change of a neighborhood is what they used to call the Starbucks effect, mm-hmm. where yeah. a Starbucks opened up, then you knew that mm-hmm. the, um, they actually call it the Starbucks effect, mm-hmm. uh, real estate agents, et cetera, because it means that the, the real estate prices are going, are st- going to start to escalate. It's, it signals that um, it's a death knell for whatever happened there, whatever mom and shop biz- pop, shops were there and then in addition um the other neighbor the other restaurants will follow because they trust that the people at starbucks have done their legwork so they don't have to at that Mm -hmm. point um so it's an interesting perspective i mean we're sitting in a hotel Mm -hmm. that uh is in the middle of a neighborhood that has been gentrified Mm -hmm. let's make no mistake about it uh as we go westerly this, the same thing happened to Georgetown. A lot of people are unaware that Georgetown was a, was a black neighborhood. Almost all of D.C. was, to mm-hmm. be quite frank, right. um, with the exception of right around the Capitol. Since the founding of, the, of D.C. as the Capitol, the mm-hmm. moving of it mm-hmm. from, from Philadelphia. So um, everywhere is that place yeah. um, because you needed people who were working. Uh, and so what we have to really look at is... Um, how are we participating in that? So mm-hmm. we like ramen. We want to go to the 930 Club. We want to hang out and eat ramen, right? right? right. It's like a date night. Go you know, to the movies next door. But then what are we doing? And, and one of the primary things that my parents taught me uh, is, you know, as, as, as Columbia University and, and, and NYU University graduates, is that no matter what is going on in your personal existence, as you progress into whatever you're doing it's it's one for them and one for you mm-hmm. right so it's one for your uh the, your your customers who may come in because the the area has been gentrified or whatever the case is and then it's one for your community whatever that community is and that community is not necessarily based on color you know or or race you know artificial constructs of those things it's just based on what's important to you philanthropically mm. It's all fascinating, and like Crystal said, it comes back to power, whether it's having political power and making sure the people who have been there have it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about respect. It's about pride and sovereignty. So with that, let's, let's go into our first question about yes. food. <laughs> um, so will each of you please share your individual stake in this conversation and this topic? How do you define cultural appropriation in food, and how does it relate back to your work? Crystal, start with you. Um, so, a perfect example. I'll I'll start with I'll start with giving my definition by giving an example of how I tried to not do that. <laughs> um, so, I did a Kamayan in Baltimore with Yana Gilbuena. Um, I've always loved Filipino food, and um, I happened to see her in New York um, last year at Jubilee. We both spoke at Jubilee. And what is a Kamayan? Um, it's a traditional Filipino feast. Uh, you're eating with your hands. Um, it's with your community or your family or loved ones. Um, and it's, it's just a really beautiful thing. There are some 
not necessarily all the time, but there's a longer table um, and you have banana leaves out, a liner, um, or sometimes if you don't have access to that, um, which I've learned recently, you can use uh, a like really nice tarp-like situation. Um, but it's, um, it's just a really beautiful meal. Um, it can be like a very long, everlasting meal. It can be a brief meal, but it's usually a longer feast. Um, and it accents different parts of Filipino cuisine, which um, the Philippines have so many islands. Um, and it's, it's such a rich culture that, you know, I think when we, a lot of times when we get food in America from um, many cultures, it, by the time it comes here, it's often watered down. And I know that, you know, I don't think that my Filipino client that I did with Yana was, um, I know I'm sure a lot of Filipino people who came to it, they thought it was great. But I, I did know at the end when we had questions like a Q&A with Yana, some people were like, oh, why did you choose to do this? Like, you chose to do seafood. That's really interesting. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, we're in Baltimore and I wanted to do crabs. Like, mm -hmm. I just wanted to do my own take on it. Um, you're not always going to get the 100% thing because you're not in the Philippines. No, no lumpia. <laughs> right. No, well, no, well, we did actually. You had lumpia, all right. We didn't have, we didn't have lumpia, oh. but we, um, we had a lot of things that were traditional, but with her take. Mm -hmm. um, she's from, well, she's from Philippines, but she lives now in San Francisco. Okay. And she travels doing these pop-up Filipino Kamayans, or these pop-up Kamayans, excuse me. So she, um, she kind of picks and chooses what she wants to use from traditional Filipino cuisine, but also draws inspiration to the city that she's going to, um, or her recent travels. Um, and perfect example for that, I wanted to do that, but I'm not Filipino, and I don't know enough about the culture. So that's when I used my, my I had a place, I had a, you know, a brick and mortar, I opened my space to her, and I was like, if you wanna come, we'd love to have you, please come and share your cuisine and your culture with us. And she was like, sure, and like whipped out her date book. And it was just as simple as that. Um, I think that, you know, and let's say I did have really great skills that I had acquired, and you know, I love Filipino food, and I've lived in the Philippines or whatever. Um, I still would have tried to reach out, reach out to, um, in my mind, the next, the nearest uh, person doing Filipino food is would be Bad Saint. So I would probably have reached out to them. Um, there were a few people in Baltimore that do uh, have restaurants, but um, I'm just now discovering that. Uh, last year, I discovered that towards the end of the year. Um, but yeah, I would have reached out to someone else local to see if they would have been open to it. So I don't think that's my story to tell. I wouldn't have felt comfortable right. because that's not my story to tell. Right. I think food, uh, you know, when I think of food and culinary appropriation, I oftentimes think of my experience as a black American woman with soul food. And, you know, soul food is very different depending on which home you go to or which part of the South you go to or Who which community you go to. Right, right. Who you know, and it's just like <laughs> when you think about the origins of soul food and how it came from, you know, enslaved African people and them making do with what they were given, the scraps that they were given, things that they probably normally would not have eaten, but how they translate very closely to dishes that are now like still part of West African cuisine, you know, that's it just shells even more of a story. Um, and a lot of times you feel, you can hear that being kind of watered down or ignored completely. Um, and then that's when you have people saying things like, oh, it's just Southern food. It's not right. soul food. And it's right. like, well, you know, what's the foundation of that? I've had that experience. Yeah. Um, I, my other half is from Columbia, okay. South Carolina. Okay. And uh, he loves okra and tomatoes or as he calls it okra and tomatoes mm. and uh, there's no yeah. there are no consonants yeah. in that it's okra and tomatoes and um, and so he you know he loves that uh his whole family loves food that they actually had no idea germinated mm. you know was were, was was is food that precipitated out of um the African experience mm. in America. Um, I, I had to explain things like yams and well. that the word yam is a West African word and that in Jamaica we use the word yam to mm. mean eat mm -hmm. something because it is a verb and it's also the food itself. The yam is, it means um, like an everlasting food source mm. that is, that is um, the foundation 
Um, that's why yams in Jamaica are called provisions, mm-hmm. you know, because they they have to be on your plate, especially when you are um, doing the agrarian work, you know, in an agrarian culture where you're chopping sugarcane or um, harvesting some sort of crop that takes so much physical labor, you must have those those starches. So the the idea that they had no I, no concept in uh, in, in this. Um, white South America, uh, South, South, uh, uh, South, Carolina, South Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they're in Colombia. So I was thinking Colombia, but they're, they're in Colombia, South Carolina. <clears throat> and between there and Charleston, um, you have lots of restaurants that are now serving heirloom Southern cuisine is what they're calling wow. it. And so there, there are lots of, you know, shrimp and grits and there's lots of oak, oak and tomatoes and there's lots of, um, collard greens, uh, you know, with whatever is in there. And, and what, ha- what ends up happening is that the story becomes that this is just, as you were saying, this is just Southern mm-hmm. food. Um, this is, it hits upon the difference between appropriation and appreciation. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> my uh, definition of what is the difference between those two things is that when you take the food... And you serve it, you leave the culture, but you also leave the pain. Mm -hmm. You're leaving the struggle, Mm -hmm. you're leaving the pain. Um, So you're borrowing all the magic, but you're ignoring our pain. Exactly. And and that's the part where it it comes in. So borrowing the food, um, I know there's plenty of people with, you know, MAGA hats on who love to go and eat ramen or love to go and eat, you know, certain foods or they're going all over eating, you know, ethnic cuisines yeah. and hanging out. But these are the same folks who may take umbrage to someone applying for citizenship to this country or coming here to work or don't want to see who the kitchen staff is behind the back door. Um, it's, it's inconvenient and it's uncomfortable. And um, the idea that that uh, the foods that we like because they're amazing, mm-hmm. of course, right? Um, we're not just going to have steak and kidney pie every day. If everything just came from England or, or Scotland, we're going to have haggis and steak and kidney pie. Right. So we, when you talk about uh, tropical foods, subtropical foods, we're talking about spices, chocolate, coffee, sugar, tea. We are talking about all the things that make life worth living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to ignore the struggle, ignore the, the trafficking of human beings that took place in order for that to get from one place to another because there were bodies laying right next to, you know, shackled and laying mm-hmm. for three months on a journey right next to yams, you know, potatoes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, hibiscus flower and plants, you know, whatever you have there, uh, cocoa pods, you know, that were transplanted with the people. These are indelible inextricable journeys and there is a debt owed to the people who um were able to fashion those foodstuffs back like reconstituted as you were saying with whatever they were given into the most delicious things and yet it's just southern cuisine that is um it's ignorant and it's insensitive and not only that i think that what we need to all remember is that um, culinary appropriation or appropriation, cultural appropriation, culinary appropriation. Um, these are, I'm a big believer that the food world and food in itself is a bigger reflection of the world that we live in as a whole in mm-hmm. every way. Like women's place in the food industry, people of color's place in the food industry, all of those things. That is a ref- direct reflection of how we live in the world today. Right. Culinary appropriation, cultural appropriation. These are byproducts of white supremacy. The normalization of abuse, which these byproducts are, these are abuse. The normalization of that, that's, quote, America, right? That's what we're supposed to be like. But it's a melting pot. We're all just supposed to be here and like, you know, like, so you're saying I I can't make ribs. I can't make, you know, like nobody's saying that. But the very fact that um, the, the integration of different people in this country is called a pot. Yes. A melting yes. pot yes. is by no accident. Yeah, it's not. And I think that when you are, um, I think that's something that we definitely need to remember that this is, this is a form of abuse and very, at varying degrees, of course, mm-hmm. um, whether it's you, um, you know, saying, Oh, 
you know, what the chopped cheese thing, like, you know, before it's like, oh, that's so ghetto and that's so trash and that's so hood. And now it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, like, chic. it's chic. And I can like, it's like my little cute, like thing that I can try and be like, I'm so hood. This is so right. lit, you know, whatever. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, I mean, that's, that is what it is. And I think that, um, you know, this is probably a conversation that, that many people are tired of and it's like I know people are like oh I'm so over talking about culinary appropriation and cultural appropriation and this that and the other and it's like yes I'm tired of talking about it too but I don't think it's been properly discussed in a way that is that people need to understand it's, I think we just keep saying white men can't make dumplings like okay like let's go further into right. why but also let's talk about how that is a bigger example of white supremacy my favorite thing to say. Yeah. Like, it's, it's not my favorite thing to say, but I mean, it's like, we're not going to dance around these topics and talk about them if that's not, you know, that is really what the root of the situation is. We can always like pick from the tree and it can be cute and like be inclusive and have one person here and doing this, that and the other. But if we're not going to get to the root of the issue, which is white supremacy, gentrification, black on black crime, culinary appropriation, uh, sexual abuse in the food industry, these are all things that are stemming from that. And it's, we can continuously go every year and talk about these things. But until someone actually addresses the major issue, then those mm -hmm. are the things that will never be discussed. But I think it's important that we break down each, which is why we're here today. So I'm, I'm glad yeah. that we're doing it. And sure. I, I think that was, yeah, a, a lot to unpack there. Um, but I think what's most disturbing about this form of white supremacy in food is how like non-overt it is mm -hmm. and people don't see it mm -hmm. as much as overt racism mm -hmm. and I think it makes it a lot harder to talk about to dismantle um, but thank you for sharing that yeah yeah so there there's like you said we can talk about this topic in yeah. so many different ways and one thing at pineapple we always like to you know, address with our guests is, um, you know, for our community, which is, you know, how to engage in this conversation, you know, among themselves, you know, with your mm -hmm. friends, with your colleagues, um, with people, you know, you work with, um, you know, what, you know, why should we engage in this conversation with each other, right? Not just on radio, not just, um, you know, on, on panels. And so, my question, our question for you is kind of, in, in what ways can engaging in this conversation um, be useful in changing behavior and ways of thinking in regards to food, social hierarchies, economic justice, and other forms of power? So maybe if we can think about this from like, a, why are we talking about this today? Um, but for your, you know, per, you know, our listeners or, you know, people who you work with, how, how, do, we, how do we bring this beyond uh, this show today? That's a good question. Um, one of the issues that faces America a as a whole from what I see and, and what we're doing right now is zooming out, you know, a, a macrocosmic view, um, is that the less we have conversations about these intersectionalities, the less we have conversation about legacies of slavery, the less that we talk about any of these issues is the more divide mm -hmm. there is as opposed to less. So I, I understand the popular notion of why do we talk about these things or this again or we have to talk about this or oh, I'm so tired of it. The only people tired of talking about these kinds of things are people who don't face it as actual issues that um, impact their livelihood, um, where they live, where they shop, where they eat, uh, their, their very own um, self-worth, right? So... As an example, I think it's important. Uh, I, I make this joke sometimes about, you know, seeing signage or or ad campaigns or you know people doing, it. and I'm just like, wow, wow, they have no friends of color. Like who who signed off on this? Like why why did they think this was okay? You know, they need like one eight hundred call a black person or call a brown person. Like <laughs> please, just call me. I would have told you that this was not a good idea. Um, and I think that instead of putting out fires that have been spun, whether it's Starbucks, whether whatever it is, right, um, we, if we avoid 
you know, with, for example, the incident that occurred at Starbucks recently, and that's only one in a line of many incidents. I know people kind of want to single it out, but Starbucks has had a major problem because they are a major American company that it's in that are in so many cities. Um, and and one of the issues that ta- that takes place is that this is not a Starbucks problem. It's an American problem. And the more we don't talk about things, the more we don't say, hey, um, you don't need to ask people of color to apologize for being in a space. And how about this? Everything that you sell here, as we've mentioned earlier, that's worth eating or drinking has come from places where the labor force is black and brown people who've brought you these goodies. And it's, it's really on a higher level. Just think of like your, your um, kindergarten person, you know, who you were in kindergarten. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to ask someone who looks like the people who provided this thing to apologize for their very presence in a place. It shouldn't take you from the time they enter till six minutes later, people are in handcuffs. Six minutes till they're in handcuffs because they asked to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, all I can say is I've seen things here in D.C. that were inexplicable to me. Uh, I've seen signage. I, I make it my business to take pictures of stuff like this because I want it to be a part of the, the running record of what we do where we needed to have asked someone else or need to think through these things. So I'm old enough because I'm real old. I'm old no, enough. Not. I am. <laughs> I have children older than all of you guys. I, I'm old enough to remember that there was a conversation about Ebonics. This was an actual thing mm-hmm. that people were debating and how um, black American vernacular that is casually spoken among uh, black folk to each other primarily is something that uh, people of color should be ashamed of and never speak aloud and, and you know, on and on. And then I'm also at, at this beautiful age of life where I see signage outside of, you know, a, a, a white owned coffee shop that says we have drinks with a Z on the end and an A. We have drinks and thangs and yo, come on, you know, or whatever. And, and just all the spellings of Z's like we're in Boys in the Hood or something and A's and places where I's should be. And, and how is that okay? And yet, if I spoke like that, I would be immediately dismissed as someone who was not intelligent, not intellectual, whatever the case is. But it's okay to use our language to sell products that brown people have harvested for you. And that um, it's just, it's inconceivable that there's a a disconnect. And that's a cognitive dissonance that I, I really want people who are in the food industry to like get. Mm -hmm. Like you, you cannot do that because what you're doing is um, a further disenfranchisement of people. I know it seems cute, you know, whatever the case is, but it's just not. Yeah. It's It's pure exploitation. And I think it's unfortunate because we live in a lazy society, right? Like we have come to want to just have information at our fingertips, like just do one little rehit of research. And we're also with laziness comes comfort. We want to be comfortable. Like I may not want to know that um, the coffee shop that I want to get my tea from is problematic and doesn't pay their Mm -hmm. employees and also sexually assaults women in their in their company i mean i want to know that because it's cute and it's bespoke and i want to support but if it's problematic it's problematic and i think i did hear what you said about people being tired of the conversation the people who aren't affected i'm slightly tired of the conversation why Mm -hmm. because as a person of color we are often asked or tasked to do the emotional labor of the research and telling and it's not necessarily labor to be like this is wrong like i don't mind saying oh this is wrong but one thing is for that i don't necessarily speak for all black people so i can't say like oh this is wrong for me another black person like i think that's fine you know um and two i think that when you when it comes down to just the world that we live in today like i just think we need to all focus on being more mindful like we want people to affect change and we want to see change but we don't want to be a part of that change we just want to reap the benefit you have to be a part you have to unfortunately like um uh jen hag shout out to jen from black Huff. you have to sometimes if you really want a burger but the business owner is problematic and they're messy 
don't get the burger, unfortunately. Right. And cultural appropriation is not just a racial thing. It's a lot of people who culturally appropriate uh, LGBTQ culture. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people be waving gay pride flags, but if I came in with my partner and a child, mm-hmm. you know, you would be all some kind of way. Or they're using the language. Right. You know, or if I came in club language. and I like, you know, if I came in as a trans woman or a trans man and I may not necessarily present as a like as a cis man you would be like looking at me weird if I said my name was Dave for my order and you'd be like uh what you know you don't make me comfortable you don't provide space for me so but you want to use my culture and put me on and be like you know it's not just a racial thing it's just a time right now where we all need to be mindful of how we operate in this world and yes it's not going to come easy and yes you might offend someone and no it's not the end of the world but the thing that happens beyond you offending someone or beyond you making the mistake is really what makes a difference right if you make that mistake and then you find out what you did was wrong I'm sorry I didn't know I didn't mean to be right. wrong correct how can I correct this yeah. behavior so I don't do it going forward and how can I be a benefit to my community in the community in your community by also sharing my experience so that this doesn't happen it's not repeated um, that's how we end cycles of abuse through education through formats like this and you know just being very open and honest you know that's the only good thing that's come from this presidency is that you know we have now seen how people really feel about stuff. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately it's, it's, it's horrible. Yes. It's not a good yeah. feeling, you know, but at the same time, now that I know how to operate, you know, you sit here thinking that your neighbor is like super hella liberal, but he's like one of the most like problematic people in the world. You know, it's, it's, it's good to know how they really feel. And um, I think that, you know, the one way that you as a listener can really make a difference is, uh, making providing space um and also uplifting voices and also being very conscious of how you spend money what does that mean um if you want to uplift people of color in your community or if you want to uplift other marginalized people in your food community um maybe go the extra mile by seeking out someone who makes a um and a char pickle, you know, instead of going to the like nearest Trader Joe's or somewhere else to get like a little like mass produced a char, like get someone locally. You're supporting a local economy. You're supporting a woman. You're supporting a person of color. You're hitting a lot mm-hmm. of bases. You're learning more about the culture than you normally would probably, right. um, because chances are, if it's a small owner, a small business owner, they've written their story somewhere in the packaging, or you've looked into it mm-hmm. a tiny bit more. Um, when it comes to providing space, if you're a business owner and you want to do um, some type of like uh, Polynesian tiki, do you have any Polynesian people in nearby that you could reach out to and say, hey, I really want to make this. Um, I really want to do this. But one, is it OK? Yeah. Two, if it is OK, would you like to be a part or like lead it up or give me some pointers or let me know like what you think or, you know, something. And then three, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think. Oh, the, the uh, oh, uplifting voices. That way you're making space and uplifting voices. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's something that Julia Tertian, not to name drop, but shout out to Julia. That's something that she really wanted to do with equity at the table. Just like providing, providing access or putting people to the, of color and minorities and people who are just really marginalized up to the forefront and like really giving them an opportunity to be seen in this industry where we're like ignored unless it's like pride month or we're ignored unless it's like black history month or Asian American or Pacific Islander month, you know, (laughs) it's really, you know, I understand that everybody wants to be inclusive and those are the perfect times to be uh, on trend and running and giving people platforms, but give me a platform outside of that time, you know, give me a voice outside of that time, support me outside of that time. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think it's really hard. Sense. It's it's going to take a maybe a tiny bit of effort on the consumer's part or the listener's part, but it's really not that hard. You're also you're still doing things that um, are not outside of your day to day, and you're actually making the you're doing yourself a service by making this food scene and the culture more diverse. Um, it's it's so simple, and it actually benefits you in the long run to be inclusive and to do your right. research and to be respectful. Um, of people's culture and food you know food is one of the biggest cultural exchanges and if not the biggest if not the biggest if not the biggest and and it's a it's an opportunity for coming together 
um, and pushing forward. Mm -hmm. So, for example, in in our cafe at Calabash, um, our our conversations, you know, from the last couple of months with our staff have been about pronouns Mm, mm -hmm. and how to address people who are ordering, how to keep from embarrassing people or yourself, moreover, uh, by referring to someone as male or female, Mm -hmm. when maybe that's not how they really want to be addressed. And so we have whole staff meetings about how we can be great with that, not because somebody called us out on it. Mm But because we want to be on that next level, yeah, we I understand <laughs> for oh. that reason. <laughs> also, just because I like saying y'all, but you know, you just need to be yeah. um, thoughtful in yeah. that regard. Yeah, them, they, y'all. You know, all of all of mm-hmm. the things that can be more inclusive, so that people can self-identify mm-hmm. instead of the assumptions that that are lie, lying there. Mm-hmm. And I think also, if you see things, say something. Oh, for sure. You know, if you see something, say something. I see things all the time that I'm like, why is this okay? Mm-hmm. And why would you think that that thing was okay? Mm-hmm. Um, meaning, you know, places to go out and eat or whatever's going on. And I think that there's an opportunity for privated conversations that don't require dragging people, mm-hmm. um, you know, necessarily on social media or whatever, but like, hey, I think you might want to look at this. Oh, the call out culture yeah. of dragging. Right. And I don't think that we have to drag people as much as we can tap them on the, you know, let me pull your your shirt to this, a little, your coattail. And I think you might want to consider this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if they don't respond, then you can sort of run it up the flagpole just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, because some people aren't responsive just because of the culture we live in now um, and unless and until they are publicly dragged. And even when they're publicly dragged, they'll still send like a, yeah. you know, they'll still, they'll still have an audience of people that are like, yeah, well, they problem? wouldn't mean to do that. You right. know, it's just, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, um, the Washingtonian had an issue the other day. I don't know if you guys are aware of that on mm-hmm. there uh, with the, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a tourist. I live here kind of T-shirts. Yeah. And um, every single photo that they had with the people in the shirts was just all, you know, mm-hmm. white, you know. Um. <laughs> and and people were immediately in ar- up in arms. And I don't know if they handled it well right. because people really did try to reach to them and say, hey, what's going on? Mm-hmm. I'd love this shirt, but it seems like it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, D.C., 50% people of color, uh, black folk, you know, not even just people of color, like what's going on here. And mm-hmm. you're in a, in a city that traditionally represents that way. There's a lot of sore spots with regard to gentrification, et cetera. Like, why is that? Why you have people sitting down, you know, eating ramen on the grass with a t-shirt on like this and you've ignored everyone Brown. Like what's going on? But also the irony of that. I didn't see this campaign, but if that is what it is, the irony of yeah. like, I'm not a tourist. I live here. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like, but I feel like you are later. <laughs> yeah, we can look at that later. But I yeah. think, you know, part of it is we don't have, you know, a lot of people don't have these conversations about what can I do to, like, be a productive change, um, you know, as a person of color or someone who's white, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone um you know, who's in our country. And so, you know, I really appreciate you all sharing so many ways that, you know, our community can you know, have this conversation and, and improve on things, which mm-hmm. is, you know, providing space, uplifting voices, being conscious of how we spend money, mm-hmm. you know, going the extra mile, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, does, it's not comfortable. Um, it takes it's extra very effort. Uncomfortable. It's yeah. very uncomfortable. And truly listen. I think yeah. a lot of people say, what can we do or how can we do it? Um, like perfect example. I know the, um, like the whole, the whole Stone Barns thing, that, that panel that they had, when it was like farmers talking and they were like, you know, one person yelled, they were off mic, but they were like, you don't listen to us. And, and then the person gave them the mic and they were like, I feel like I come to these things and like no one listens to us. And, um, you know, I feel very alienated. Or one woman asked the question to Mark Bittman, how do you hold yourself accountable to communities of color? And it was right. just kind of like, I don't know how to answer it. Like, he didn't really, he's like, I don't understand that question. It was just like, and he didn't really answer it. It's just that when you're posed with a question, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times people get very defensive and they shut Mm -hmm. down. Um, But really sit back and think about it. It's not meant as an attack. You know, oftentimes when people ask you a question like that, it's not meant as an attack. It's meant as truly like, what are you doing to how do you hold yourself accountable? Like, what do you plan to do in order to make sure that this is more inclusive? 
So I just want people to really understand that when they get in those situations, like, you know, if you see yourself as an ally and you feel like you're being bombarded, you're not really being attacked. Don't take it so personally. Mm -hmm. Just listen and really try to see how you can make a change. I'm sorry to cut you off, Ariel. I didn't mean to do that. But I just wanted to say that I feel like it's very important to not be on the defense in situations like this. Mm -hmm. And finding allies and all of these Mm -hmm. conversations is super important, Um, you know, if you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. It's like, an opportunity for growth. Exactly. Yeah. That's why um, you're growing out of your learning. your narrow-mindedness. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, reach out to friends, um, reach out to colleagues with whom you may feel comfortable to begin having this conversation and, uh, you know, create space, listen. Uh, we I said all of that already. So, you know, we'd love to... Um, We'd love to continue having this conversation with both of you for, you know, so much longer. Um, But we do have to wrap up um, our hour here on Pineapple Radio. Uh, Just for our listeners, one more time, we have our guests, uh, Crystal Mack, as well as Sunyata Amen, in the studio with us today, talking all about culinary appropriation versus appreciation, and honestly, so So much much more. more. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, And we are going to wrap up on a fun um, little speed round of questions that we always do with our guests. And it's just to get a better sense of your personal style um, when it comes to to food and opportunity to shout out any women um, that maybe you would love to share with our audience. So... um, Crystal, I'm going to start with you, and if you could just um, give us a you know one word answer, max one sentence, that would be great. Um, <laughs> not just saying for you, no, I'm just saying for the like, sake of time. <laughs> no, cool. Um, okay, cool. So, a woman you pine for in food? Uh, one of my very best friends, uh, Gabrielle. Uh, if you want to find her on Instagram, it's Gabrielle underscore Etienne E I T I E. N-N-E. She's really amazing. She is a food preservationist, uh, writer, food historian, cook, an amazing cook. She just relocated or moved back home to uh, South Carolina, so she's amazing. Cool. Sunyata? I would say one of my major food crushes is Carla Hall. Mm. I know people know who she is um, at this point, but I will say that quiet as it's kept Carla really does go in hard Mm. for other women women of color she uses our teas in lots of her products lots of her recipes and she always has Um, she's been a regular customer she comes in hangs out Mm. um, just very on the low you know nobody even knows like was that Carla I mean she'll in and out and um, I love that she always encouraged us and I think that what she's doing with um, furthering women of color in a, in a, in a productive and positive light mm-hmm. uh, it is really important. You know, we, we need to see more than just, oh, it's this Oprah, it's so-and-so, it's so, you know, and it's just like we're either on the news or we're talking to somebody about their tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're also really great at this other thing. And um, that's an opportunity. I love that she is always looking to educate people about the culture of food, you know, with making it fun. Awesome. Uh, we love Carlish. We also featured her on Pine Four Pantry. And yes. just even that she would, you know, do it with us as well was that's a real sign. That's how dope she of, is. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all, of, all of our women who we featured to let us into their home, we're grateful for. Wink, Speaking wink, Crystal. Thanks, <laughs> guy. Speaking of which, your go-to pantry and fridge item. Crystal. Ooh, butter. <laughs> I really love butter. Um, yeah, butter. I, I love President Butter. It's the French butter. It's so good. Um, I love salted butter. It has to be salted most of the time. Um, and I was re, like inspired yesterday, actually, to maybe get back into culturing my own butter. Mm. So, um, Crystal's butter. Crystal's butter. <laughs> Crystal's creamery uh, okay. with a K. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, no, butter is my go-to. Probably shouldn't be, but you only live once, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what some people say. Ah, I like that. I like that. Well, uh, curry is my go-to item. Mm. Uh, I think you can put it on anything, like popcorn, food, you know, vegetables, children. Uh, You can put it on anything. Um, 
I we make our own curry in house at our at our cafe, and it's called Aunt Jem's favorite curry because it was my aunt's favorite, and she had three Jamaican restaurants wow. uh, called Jamaican Secrets, and it took me like ten years to get that curry recipe out of her, <laughs> but I have it now, <laughs> and um, and I you know c- carrying on in that tradition. She's since passed on, and I and I love that woman to pieces, oh. and. Um, just the idea that you can use that one seasoning to do so many things, even if it's that you got home before your family, like 10 minutes before them, and you can put on a pot of like hot water and throw a teaspoon of curry in it, and it makes the whole house smell mm-hmm. amazing. So everyone just goes to their corner. They don't come in asking what's for dinner. So it's just, you just, just want to make a fragrant yeah. environment. I'm working you right know. now. Yeah. yeah, it's happening. You smell yeah, I do, it? I do that with onions with my partner. Yeah. He's that's like, what's you, for dinner? I'm like, you like, don't you smell it? I said, I need an hour and a half. And he's like, you did this in 15 minutes. It's like, <laughs> I need it time alone. Under promise, over deliver. <laughs> that's right. Get that's it. Right. Love it. So last but not least, where can our audience find you on, you know, web or in person? Uh, oh, well, online, I guess you guys can find me at, uh, at K-R-Y-S-T-A-L, Crystal, C as in cat, Mac, M-A-C-K. Uh, that's my Instagram handle. That's my Twitter. I don't really tweet, uh, but mostly on the gram. Um, and in person, you can find me in Baltimore, maybe, if I'm not hiding out at home. <laughs> um, but you can also find me at Little Pearl in D.C. Um, I do a lot of front of house at Little Pearl and some prep, so... I've seen a lot of pineapple ladies come through um, from I've never met them uh, before working at Little Pro, but seeing them on panels and then like they pump into me and like, hey, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah, aren't you? And it's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm always at Little Pearl. Come by. I'll hook you up with some caffeine. Uh, yeah. Coffee's always nice. We'll talk to you <laughs> yeah. after this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, people can find me at at mm-hmm. right. uh, Calabash Tea. <laughs> Uh, and that's our Twitter and our Instagram and our Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can find us, at least find me for the moment, at our, at our current location in Shaw, which is on 7th Street between S and T. Uh, and then we're, we're now building the Brooklyn location with a teaching garden outside. So oh, it's all um, herbal medicinals uh, with little, little uh, fun facts on the, on the garden wow. so that people can, you know, rub a plant, squeeze a plant, shake a hand of a plant and, you know, get to know it. <laughs> Uh, and get to know what the medicinal purpose and not just the culinary aspect of it is so that they can use it medicinally, culinarily. Right. Um, and that's what food is for. Right. So we, we look forward to seeing folks there too. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much um, for your insights and your time. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Uh, We're here live on Full Service Radio every other Friday. And you can catch our episodes online at fullserviceradio.org or on our website, pineapplecollaborative.com. Shoot us a DM or, you know, tweet at us, um, send us an email, give us your feedback on our episodes and what you want to hear more about in the wide world of women and food. And rate um, rate us on the podcast app. That would be really, stars. really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give you a shout out on our newsletter if you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also where you can find us in person, our next DC event is on May 31st. Um, it's uh, Whisk Takers. It's all about women <laughs> and baking and incredible that. forward-thinking pastry chefs and bakers who are leading nice. the charge um, and expressing you know their style, identity, and values through their baked goods in so many different different ways. Um, there's going to be a bake sale component as well, uh, benefiting La Cocina Virginia, which is this awesome nonprofit in Virginia um, that provides job uh, opportunities and food assistance to immigrants and specifically immigrant women. So um, we're really thrilled for that event. Get your tickets before they sell out and uh, you can say hey to me and Atara there and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Cool.